is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks very much for tuning in. For decades, statues of racist historical figures have towered over a lot of American cities and towns. Now, a lot of those statues are being torn down in what has become a movement of sorts here in 2020. Just this week, protesters in Baltimore ripped down a marble statue of Christopher Columbus and tossed the pieces into the city's inner harbor. Here in Southeast Michigan, we're having our own reckoning with racist statues. A couple weeks ago, we talked about the removal of Detroit's Columbus statue. Not long after that, a statue of Dearborn's longtime mayor, Orville Hubbard, was quickly removed from public display. As shortly after someone put a Black Lives Matter shirt on the statue. According to biographer David Good, Hubbard was an unregenerate racist who enacted numerous city policies exacerbating segregation and racial tensions in Dearborn over the course of his 36-year tenure as mayor. Here to talk more about this statue's removal and Hubbard's legacy are two people who know quite a bit about those things. Brian Stone is the English editor of the Yemeni American News. He wrote a piece recently titled The Wild Story Behind Dearborn's Vanished Hubbard Statue. Brian Stone, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Yes. And also with us is David Good. He's a longtime journalist and author of Orvi, The Dictator of Dearborn. He's also a member of the Dearborn Historical Commission and former editor of the Dearborn Historian. David Good, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yeah. So, Brian, let's start with you. Catch us up on what happened recently with the Orville Hubbard statue. Who took it down and where did it go? <laughs> well, that is that is why it's a wild story. Um, so, like you said, after the Black Lives Matter T-shirt was uh, placed on Orville Hubbard, which, um, in my own personal opinion, was a, a pretty funny prank, um, the the city began looking at ways to get rid of the statue. And uh, three separate council persons, um, all of them are actually women, believe it or not. Um, called for the statue to be removed uh, because they felt that it didn't represent the city as it stands today. And what occurred is that the city essentially came to a decision that they actually never owned the statue all along. And uh, (laughs) they made a statement that um, almost directly contradicts the legal opinion that I found uh, from the city attorney from 2017 Uh, where they were discussing with the Historical Commission all of the ways they could defend the city's ownership of the statue. And so uh, they essentially invented a a sort of legal reasoning that allowed them to act as if they never had the statue in the first place, and they gave it back to the Hubbard family. Um, Now it's essentially in the possession of uh, Susan Hubbard, who's um, the granddaughter of Orville Hubbard, and um, a, a Third Circuit Wayne County judge. And from uh, my discussions with her, she intends to put the uh, statue uh, on his grave site in Union City, Michigan, uh, where she says he his statue can rest in peace. Mm-hmm. Uh, so David Good, uh, explain these sort of questions over who actually owns the statue and who gets to make these kinds of decisions. What's going on here? 
Well, it's a kind of a tangled web. Uh, we were told, uh, the Historical Commission was told in 2017 for the first time that the Hubbard family claimed to own the statue. Uh, we asked for the legal opinion that Brian is referring to, which said that the Hubbard family has few legal avenues to establish ownership. Then suddenly the statue is gone and the city is saying, oh, well, the uh, city never owned it at any point after all. Um, Mayor O'Reilly, John B. O'Reilly Jr., had told us several years ago that the city never formally accepted uh, possession of the statue as a gift. This uh, city attorney's uh, opinion said essentially that didn't really matter. Uh, but this is what the city is hanging its hat on now as a sort of a, a means to get rid of a hot potato. Hmm. Uh, I, I wonder if you can both also talk about for listeners who don't know or don't remember who Orville Hubbard was and why he is so problematic in the history of Dearborn. Uh, David, I'll start with you. Well, Hubbard, uh, when he left office in 1978, was one of the longest-serving mayors in the history of the country. In fact, I think he was number two to Erastus Corning the second of Albany, New York, uh, by about six days. Um, the problem with Hubbard's uh, tenure and his legacy is that uh, almost uh, from the beginning of his uh, uh, tenure in the, in the mid-40s, uh, he started playing the race card uh, from a white standpoint uh, and did a number of things that were quite problematic. Uh, in, um, in 1956, for instance, this was a few months after the, the Rosa Parks uh, bus incident in Montgomery, uh, he was interviewed uh, in a, uh, some statements that went national, um, saying that he was for segregation, complete segregation, one million percent on all levels. Mm. And that's what really labeled him as uh, the most um, unabashed segregationist in the North, you might say. Mm. Uh, Brian, uh, as David says, Orville Hubbard was really openly racist and pushed through a number of racist policies, but he, he wasn't the person who started Dearborn on that path. Yeah, that's true. And and when we look at the history of Dearborn, Dearborn used to be three separate communities, um, Dearborn Township, Springwells Township, and then Fordson. Uh, and those three communities um, each had their own sort of separate character, but they were really one larger, broader community. Um, my ancestors um, on my mother's side, the Tenikes, were the, the first ones to sort of move into the community um, and start up a business. And, and it grew over time throughout the 1800s. And at the time that Henry Ford was born and uh, growing up in Dearborn, uh, he was actually growing up in an integrated, a racially integrated community. Uh, there were quite a few African-American farmers and landowners, um, and some of them uh, had a, a significant amount of assets. Uh, several of them had over $5,000 in assets, which today is about $150,000. Mm. So um, there were actually some very prosperous African-Americans living in uh, modern-day Dearborn then. In the 1860 census, uh, there were 
well over 50 African-American families uh, living in, in these three communities. Um, in 1960, at the time of Orville Hubbard, there was not a single African-American family living in Dearborn. And the 24 African-Americans that were living in Dearborn were all living in a white residence as servants. Mm. Um, and so when we look at how Dearborn was changed, it essentially happened when uh, Henry Ford began to industrialize. And uh, several community leaders, uh, according to Henry Haig, a, a well-known Dearborn historian, um, including one of my ancestors, went out to uh, convince uh, farmers that industrialism was the way of the future and they needed to sell their farmland to Ford and he had plans to remake the city. And indeed he did. Uh, but as he purchased the homes from uh, black landowners and white landowners, uh, white persons who worked for him were located in Dearborn, where he created the better housing, mm -hmm. uh, housing like the, the Dearborn Ford Historic Homes District. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And black persons were located in Inkster, where he created inferior housing. And of course, as uh, many African Americans moved up from the South, uh, escaping racial terrorism under the Ku Klux Klan and finding good work under Henry Ford, uh, we were also concentrating um, poverty and concentrating um, psychological issues yeah. uh, because we had an entire group of people who were escaping a lifetime of terrorism and torture and um, unimaginable experiences. Many of the people who began working for Ford in the uh, early 20th century uh, had been enslaved when they were uh, children. And so you, you concentrate all of the, the trauma, and um, it, of course, ended up that these two communities, Dearborn and Inkster, had very different outcomes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so in many ways, the segregation of Dearborn and Inkster and the way in which those communities were formed depended on Henry Ford and the immense power he had in that period of time. Yeah, yeah. And Orville Hubbard becomes sort of the, the caretaker, I guess, of, of mm -hmm. all of that when he's elected uh, mayor. Uh, I'm talking with Brian Stone and David Good. Uh, Brian is the English editor of the Yemeni American News. Recently we wrote a piece titled The Wild Story Behind Dearborn's Vanished Hubbard Statue. Uh, David Good is a longtime journalist and author of Orvi, the dictator of Dearborn. He's also a member of the Dearborn Historical Commission and former editor of the Dearborn historian. We're talking about the Orville Hubbard statue in Dearborn, which is now gone after some controversy uh, over it during the Black Lives Matter protests that we have seen unfold across the country for many weeks now. Um, we want to hear from you as well. Uh, give us a call and tell us if you agree with the idea of protesters taking down statues and monuments of racist historical figures. Why do you agree with that or why don't you? Uh, if you don't think protesters should be acting on their own in this way, how do you think we should be dealing with these symbols that are all over cities and towns in America? We especially want to hear from you today if you're from Dearborn uh, or if you live in Dearborn. Uh, are you happy with that statue of Orville Hubbard being gone? Or do you think it should have been left standing where it was in the city? How do you think Dearborn should deal 
with its racist past. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to get to your calls. Christopher in Detroit, Tim in Bagley, Lola in Dearborn, Mark in Redford Township. We'll hear from you. Again, if you want to join them, 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET delivers trusted news, inclusive conversations, and cultural experiences that empower the community. 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. Stephen Henderson, as always, I'm glad you've joined. We're talking about the Orville Hubbard statue in Dearborn, what happened to it, and what should happen with all of the statues and monuments that honor racist historical figures in this country. We're seeing lots of people tear them down. We're seeing lots of communities talk about what the future should be for those monuments and memorials. We want to hear from you. What would you do with statues that honor people who were uh, compromised by uh, racist belief or racist policy uh, that they indulged? Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Let's start with Mark in Redford Township. Mark, welcome to the show. Stephen, good morning. Hey. And good morning to your guests. Um, My question, my point is, they removed that statue of Orville Hubbard, but um, what I wanted to say was, what took so long? Um, when I was an adolescent, my parents took us to Camp Dearborn, mm-hmm. and there were specific orders that came from Orville Hubbard's office that African Americans were not allowed at that um, at that facility out there by Proud Lake. And I was just 12, 13 years old. My sister was about 10. And personally, I think I recall, I was very appalled by that. Yeah. Um, uh, Mark, uh, I, I really appreciate the call and and you sharing your memories. Uh, David Good, uh, you spent a lot of hours talking with Orville Hubbard. You say you have some 50 hours of tape of you interviewing him. Uh, how did those conversations affect your own personal feelings about him as a person and as a, a public official? Um, before I met Hubbard, I did not expect to like him because uh, I, I knew what he was. Um, the Detroit News assigned me to cover Hubbard and the Dearborn Beat uh, in 1968, and I got to know him then, and I have to say I was uh, surprised. Um, you know, the Reader's Digest used to have this feature called the most unforgettable character I've ever met. Well, Hubbard, for any newspaper person, probably would have been that because he was just such a fascinating guy. Mm. You never knew what he was going to say or do, and even though you you, you might be appalled at what he was saying, uh, he, he was a riveting speaker and an unforgettable character. And I continued to find out those kinds of things about him uh, when we taped our interviews. Mm. 
Hmm. Uh, let's go to Lola in Dearborn. Lola, welcome to the show. Uh, uh, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm yeah. doing fine. But anyway, okay, I remember, uh, uh, Herbert, because of the fact uh, that when I was riding the courts coming into Dearborn, I lived in Dearborn, mind mm. And so, but anyway, so when I was coming into Dearborn, so, um, so what they told me that I had to pay another fee, I said, no, I'm not. I said, I've already paid a fee. I live here. And so they said, are you a maid coming? I said, no way. I own property here. Mm. And so anyway, so they were shocked. And I noticed that before I said that, people that were on the courts, I didn't know what color they were, but they were saying, no, you don't want to get off here. You want to go farther. I said, I know where I want to get off, Ed. I live here. <laughs> and so this was, you know, in other words, so when you're talking about both of these subjects, it's just like uh, I don't drive, but my husband drives. And so he had a Camaro convertible, and it's black on black. And the police would always stop us when we were in that car. Wow. Whether they were complimenting it or whether or not they wanted to remove us from our own car. <laughs> Sometimes I, it was because they liked the car, huh? <laughs> and, and in other words, so that was really, and he still has that car, but it's a collector's item now. Yeah. And mind you, I made the deal on it. So, <laughs> so it was a good thing. And so anyway, so I'm going to let you go. And, and okay. Like say, you, you have a lovely show. Oh, it's, thank you. It's repulsive trying not to call you. <laughs> Lola, we love that you listen and that you call. Uh, I also love that uh, you refer to the bus as the coach, uh, which which places uh, you in a in a in a time that uh, that I remember really well uh, here in in Detroit. Uh, Brian, I, I want you to talk about that experience of black people in Dearborn. Uh, and how they've sort of over time been been treated differently, not just by whites, but also by immigrants who were used as a way to try to keep black people like Lola and her family out of Dearborn. Yeah, well, you know, first off, I just want to say that I'm so sorry about the experiences you had, Lola. And, um, you know, growing up as a, as a kid in Dearborn in the 90s, um, we still had a prevalence of police pulling over African-Americans, attempting to basically ward them out of the city. And, um, and I knew this because I asked my mom uh, around like eight, nine years old, uh, why don't white people speed in Dearborn? Uh, because I couldn't understand why only African-Americans were getting pulled over. Mm. So I just couldn't figure out why white people weren't speeding, too. <laughs> and um, that's when she kind of had to have the talk with me about yeah. Orville Hubbard and her history. <laughs> right. And um, and so that was the beginning of my education. At the same time, I was growing up in a diverse Dearborn uh, with a, a lively uh, uh, Arab American community and many African American classmates in school. Um, but the history of the Arab American community coming to Dearborn is one that is uh, complex. Um, immigration started with Henry Ford. Um, he actually specifically asked the British ambassador who was in charge of Yemen for 200 Yemenis because he felt uh, they were hardworking people. Um, and so uh, that sort of began the Yemeni journey to Dearborn. And then there were many other um, uh, ethnic Arab communities that also came over. And part of how that happened is they actually sued um, in court 
with the United States government to have them declared as white. And uh, one of the arguments, uh, if I recall correctly, was made in court was that actually, well, Jesus was white and Syrians, which um, back then in the 20s, Syria encompassed Lebanon and Palestine and and modern day Syria and other areas. Syrians uh, were the same people as who, you know, it, it covered the area where Jesus grew up. And since Jesus was white, therefore Syrians must be white. Mm. And um, and suing for whiteness is actually how Arab Americans open the door for immigration. Wow. Um, when uh, immigration used to be more restricted based on race, and so um, that identity of Arabs as being a white people persisted even into the 90s, where you see community leaders like Don Yunus, who um, a school's named after in Dearborn, uh, writing in the Dearborn Press and Guide that. Uh, Arab Americans are white people. And of course, that changed after 9-11. Uh, there was a huge shift in how Arab Americans view themselves as brown pe- as brown people, as brown persons, as mm. colored persons, uh, because they were treated um, as less than and as a separate race of people. Mm. And so now that identity has changed quite a bit. But there was always sort of a wink and a nod and quite a bit of talk about how um, Orville Hubbard uh, didn't mind having uh, Syrians in East Dearborn or the, on the South End in particular because he recognized the hostility between Arabs and African Americans. Mm. And to this day, there are conversations going on in the Arab American community about the words used in Arabic to describe black persons. In particular, how inappropriate it is yeah. to call uh, African Americans abed, abed, which is the yeah. Arabic word for slave. Right. And and there are still people to this day who will refer to black persons um, as abed. Yeah. And so this is, um, you know, an ongoing tension. And so in many ways, even though the Arab American community is a, a victim of white supremacy and a, a victim of the way our country views persons who are considered non-white, they at one time in some ways benefited from white supremacy. And and their congregation in Dearborn, the the encouragement of immigration to Dearborn, had a great deal to do with uh, keeping uh, African Americans out. And so, you know, our history is deeply intertwined with racism yeah. and segregation. I mean, that's such a that's such a layered dynamic uh, in terms of how white supremacy functions and how it works to to the advantage, uh, the, the sort of minor advantage of other groups sometimes, but overall to the disadvantage of anyone who is not white. Okay, uh, mm-hmm. Brian Stone and David Good. It was really great to have you guys here for this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you. All right, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow for a conversation about the evolution of language as it pertains to members of Black America. That's Black with a capital B. We'll talk with a Temple University journalism professor who has been pushing for that change for years. And the New York Times deputy managing editor will join us to talk about why it was time for that paper to make the switch. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.